Good afternoon, and welcome to another edition of the All Souls Forum. Today we resume presentations from the All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church of Kansas City, Missouri. Our presentation today is Inequality Kills with Dr. Stephen Bezruka. And a caution, there were technical difficulties with the recording, so there is a significant amount of echo. Good morning and welcome to the Forum at All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church. I'm Spencer Graves. I represent the Forum Committee, whose core group of dedicated members developed the program schedule. Since 1943, this forum has provided a platform for discussing significant issues in the contemporary world. I am pleased to introduce this morning's speaker, Dr. Stephen Vesruska who is a prolific researcher and author. His most recent book appeared earlier this year, entitled Inequality Kills Us All, COVID-19's Lessons. Rates of infection seem to decline uh, substantially with the reduction in poverty. Uh, and this was before the widespread introduction of other measures that might uh, explain the, those improvements in public health. That article inspired him to get a master's in public health and continue research in this area, and it connected, connected it not some uh, more to inequality. But he was talking; he was telling me just a few minutes ago, over 500 publications in this area. A very little of them get get coverage in the uh, major media. Um, and, and his recent magnum opus is this is this book I just mentioned on inequality kills us all. Um, and with that, I think I need to turn it over to Dr. Bezruska. So, so thank you, Spencer, for the introduction. I want to talk about health and ask how healthy you are, why you think that, what produces health and why, and finally, my perspective. Now, So uh, first, ask yourself, what's the most common sexually transmitted infection? Everyone listening has been infected. No, not herpes, nor chlamydia, nor HPV. Life is the most common sexually transmitted infection. You're all here because your father's sperm infected your mother's ovum to produce the zygote that ended up being you listening to me. It's important to consider this analogy because the ovum, the egg your mother produced to begat you was done while she was in your maternal grandmother's womb. Women are born with all the ova they will ever have. So the conditions your grandparents had must have affected you and your health. Remember that. Now ask yourself how healthy you are and why. Many of you might say very healthy or just healthy. Or maybe you have some long-standing ailments such as diabetes or high blood pressure and may respond just okay. Or maybe not so healthy. How healthy are you? Books abound on how to be healthy by eating such or doing this or avoiding that. Ask yourself what health-producing advice you take. 
How effective do you think that advice is? If you go to see your doctor, she or he may have a different opinion on your health. Typically, your vital signs are measured. That is your pulse, temperature, blood pressure, maybe your weight to come up with some numbers. She may want to do some further tests on your blood or urine and maybe do some scans. If we do enough tests, we're bound to come up with some abnormal values. Any statistician knows that. The lesson there is that if you think you're healthy, you haven't had enough tests yet. If you find something abnormal on anyone, are we doing you a favor and doing a lot of tests? If we come up with a peculiar value that is just a statistical aberration, but tell you there's something abnormal and cause you to worry and get more tests, have we done you a favor? Likely not, if nothing is wrong. So we still haven't found an answer to the question of how healthy you are. If you look at obituaries, you'll find the age at death in all of them. Given the choice, I'll bet most of you would rather live a longer life than a shorter one. But unless we execute you, we won't know your age at death, at least for a while. So that's not a convenient answer to how healthy you are. But we can compute a measure called life expectancy for a population, which represents a statistical measure the expectation of life at birth, and means something similar to the average age at death, though this is technically not correct. Period life expectancy is the number assuming death rates don't change over time. This commonly reported number allows comparisons for different groups. For the United States in 2021, the value is 76.1 years. That's, that sounds pretty good. Some of you listening may be older than that. How about the U.S. states? What is that number? The August 20th issue of the New York Times had a chart for each state. For Missouri, the figure is 75, lower than the figure for the entire country. For Kansas City, life expectancy is higher at 77 years. How can we make sense of those numbers? Let's begin by making comparisons with other countries. There are some 50 countries where life expectancies are higher than in America. That is, people live longer elsewhere than in the United States. The longest live is Japan, about eight years longer than the U.S., what do those eight years represent? Years drooling in a nursing home? If so, maybe you don't want that. But for this country to gain seven years in life expectancy in 2021, we would need to eradicate our three leading causes of death, heart disease, cancer, and COVID-19 for 2021. Imagine. If we got rid of our three leading killers, we would be close to the longest-lived country. That doesn't sound too good. So maybe we need a better measure of health that shows off how healthy we are. There's one intra-controvertible number, namely how much we spend on health care 
that demonstrates our leadership. In 2021, we spent $4.1 trillion on health care. That is close to half of the world's total health care bill. It represents a sixth of our economy. Wow. We have the most expensive medical care system in the world. But wait, something doesn't compute. We pay a great deal of money for not living a very long life. That is what we must conclude. Or maybe the life expectancy figures are wrong. But all you need to calculate life expectancy is to know when someone is born and when they die. Every rich country records births and deaths, and in the other nations they have good estimates. I have been using United Nations data for life expectancy for the last 30 years and find them reliable. Our CIA, Central Intelligence Agency, also displays life expectancy on its World Ranking website. Then there are data from the World Health Organization and the World Bank. No matter where you look, you will not find stellar life expectancy numbers for America. People in all the other rich countries and quite a few poorer ones have longer lives than we do. Logically, healthcare can't be that big a player in this process since we spend so much and have so little. It must be our personal behaviors that matter. We smoke and eat too much. I'll bet few of you out there smoke cigarettes now. If we look at the other longer-lived rich nations, the United States has the lowest proportion of men smoking. Japan, the longest-lived, has the highest proportion of men smoking. Three times as many men smoke per capita in Japan than in America. So personal behaviors, although important, cannot be that important. I can, I can similarly take apart diet as the important factor, also exercise, and others. If you're beginning to question your beliefs, take heart. As I used to think, personal behaviors and medical care mattered most for producing health. Changing my mind was a great way for me to discover that I still had a mind. Making comparisons for Missouri, Besides all other rich nations, people in the following countries have longer lives. Algeria, Argentina, Poland, Sri Lanka, Thailand, and Turkey. Remember, I started off asking how healthy you were and how you knew that. Surely some Americans must be among the longest-lived people on the planet. That must be true. The longest-lived person at any one time is never in the U.S. They, they typically hail from Japan. In my, in my book, Inequality Kills, I present data showing that mortality rates for the richest in this country are greater than in the other rich nations. Since richer people tend to have better health than poorer people, that destroys that argument. Americans are not among the longest-lived people on the planet. In a study published a couple of months ago, carried out by a stellar cast of public health researchers, they showed that considering two people 
who died before reaching age 65 in America, only one would have died if they lived in Australia, Canada, Germany, Japan, or Portugal. Between 1980 and 2019, they concluded that some 11 million Americans are missing. Meaning, if we had the health of people in the other rich countries, these deaths would have been averted. That works out to over 770 deaths a day that needn't have happened. Two fully loaded jumbo jets crashing every day. Every four days, a 9-11 catastrophe. We invaded two countries after 9-11 in wars that cost over $5 trillion and killed a couple of million civilians in Afghanistan and Iraq. But we don't recognize the carnage in our front and backyards. To summarize, I make the point that by living in the United States of America, none of us can claim to be among the healthiest people on Earth. Far from it. I hope you're asking why this is so. I'm arguing that it isn't health care and that personal health-related behaviors don't matter as much as we might think. What does matter? The title of my book, Inequality Kills Us All, COVID-19's Health Lessons for the World, spells it out. Economic inequality is bad for us. Many, many studies on COVID-19 bears this out. How can that be? Surely our huge level of income and wealth inequality is good for us, since it drives us to be more productive and innovative. Why, from 1980 to 2020, some $50 trillion was transferred from the bottom 90% to the top 1%. What could be better than that? I'm arguing that is not good for health. To begin, I've already pointed out that richer people live longer than poorer folk. But there are diminishing returns to health with greater incomes. That is, if you take someone making a million dollars a year, adding $10,000 to his income does little for his health. But if you take that $10,000 and give it to someone making $25,000 a year, it improves his health considerably. So doing a little bit of Robin Hoodism, taking a small amount from the rich and giving it to the poor, improves average health. The main argument I make in the book is that economic inequality increases stress for all of us. An example can be found in passenger airplanes, such as the jumbo jets I already mentioned. Air rage is a well-studied phenomenon, namely the various misbehaviors that occur in passenger airplanes, such as assault, belligerent behavior, sexual misconduct, and smoking in lavatories. Air rage is more likely to occur when planes have a first-class cabin. When boarding occurs through the first-class cabin rather than behind it, there's more air rage in first class. In other words, we're very sensitive to class differences. They cause more stress. Chapter 7 in my book explores stress biology, which follows the socioeconomic gradient. Namely, those lower down in income and wealth suffer more stress that is found in various routine tests performed. Inequality produces more stress.
The third reason inequality kills is that those who have too much, the top 1%, game the system to their advantage. They already send their children to private schools, gain admission to for them to prestigious universities through legacy donations, live in gated communities with their own security, and have concierge doctors at their beck and call. They pay for these benefits out of their own pockets. So why should they be taxed so others can have some assistance? That is why the richest 400 people in the country pay the lowest rate of combined federal, state, and local taxes of anyone. That leaves not enough to fund public education equitably. And many states don't take up additional federal Medicaid funds to help the poor. Since none of those 400 are really that healthy, it's a lose-lose situation. Nobody really benefits from our immense inequality. There are hundreds of research studies starting in 1979 that make the argument that inequality is bad for health. These are causal, not just representing an association. If we use the criteria laid out in the 1964 Surgeon General's report on smoking and health. Among those studies are some linking mass shootings, which has become so common in the United States that they no longer make headlines and these studies link them to our income inequality. That is, mass shootings, four or more victims, are more common where there is high income inequality as well as the presence of very high incomes. This breeds stress and resentment, which leads to individuals trying to redress that. The Secret Service issued a report this year on how this now common occurrence, where they, where they talked about how shooters experience stressful life events, had histories of aggressive behaviors, and were retaliating for perceived wrongs in their lives. But not a word about the inequality that fosters these resentments in the Secret Service report. We have, we have record numbers of overdose deaths from opioids. We consume 80%, four-fifths of all the world's opioids, but we're less than 5% of the world's population. We consume so many to try to have a nice day, as we're constantly being wished to. But we are too stressed and have a big hurt as we suffer too much social pain. Our, our opioids do a great job of relieving this pain and help us rest up until we take our final rest, which comes too soon in America. Such, such drug use is also linked to income inequality. Besides providing naloxone to treat drug overdoses, we could also address their cause by decreasing inequality. Think of economic inequality as an odorless, colorless, invisible, highly toxic, poisonous gas. Economic inequality is this 
poisonous gas that kills us from the usual conditions we die from, heart disease, cancers, diabetes, and others. And we are totally unaware of this gas that is killing us. Besides inequality, there is one other important factor. It has to do with the sexually transmitted infection you all had. As we go from the erection to the resurrection, about half of your health as an adult is programmed in the first thousand days after you were conceived. Early life conditions last a lifetime. If your parents were poor, if they didn't own their own home, if your grandparents were poor, the odds for good health are stacked against you. One important issue with early life is whether your parents have the time and money to parent. There are only two countries in the world that don't give a working woman who's pregnant paid time off as a national policy after she has her baby. One is, of course, the United States, and the only other with a population of a million or more is Papua New Guinea half of a big island north of Australia. Our, fa our Family Medical Leave Act, passed in 1993, gives four months of unpaid leave during which your job is secure. Very few mothers can afford to take four months of unpaid leave, so almost all go back to work soon after delivery. Parenting is thus compromised. This is not good for health. Remember that we are primates, members of the monkey and ape families. For all the other primates, parents, typically the mother, spend time raising the child. Somehow, we've corrupted this natural behavior in America. One measure of health in the womb is your birth weight. Those born with higher birth weights will have longer lives. They'll do better in school. Of course, these statements are about averages. So if you were born with a low birth weight, it doesn't mean you are doomed. Just that the chances are greater for not being so healthy. And we have among the highest rates of low birth weight among rich nations. Everything I've said so far has a racialized lens to it. If you're an American Indian, the situation is the worst of any racialized groups. African Americans have the second worst health outcomes. Health, health is transmitted from one generation to the next. Remember, you started your life in your maternal grandmother's womb. Slavery was not healthy for blacks in the United States. We can link poor health outcomes for U.S. Blacks to the savage history of slavery. Even having a college degree as an African-American mother still doesn't let you have a lower chance of dying in childbirth than any other group in this country. So, so telling everyone to stay in school and graduate from college won't fix the problem. Overall deaths of women from childbirth-related causes, maternal mortality, are rising in the United States, as, and we are the only 
rich nation where this is happening. Not, not a good, good sign. What is, what is the fix? How do we make America healthy again? By, th by that I mean, back in the 1950s, we had some of the highest life expectancies on the planet. We also had much less income and wealth inequality then. There are many inequality measures. One I like, used by Thomas Piketty in his bestseller, Capital in the 21st Century, is the proportion of income or wealth the richest 1% have. Spencer Graves, who invited me to speak to you today, has a post on Wikiversity with figure six there presenting this information. The bottom 50% have seen little change since the 1970s, while the richest have benefited from a huge wealth pump. In the 1950s, the country was much more equal than today. It's as if we, the people, have said, the rich don't have enough, so we will have less so they can have too much. Not good. Another measure is the ratio of compensation the CEO or boss gets as a proportion of the median or middle workers pay. The Institute for Policy Studies released its executive excess report last month. The so-called low-wage 100, reflecting the 100 Standard & Poor's corporations with the lowest median worker pay, was 603 to 1. That is, the boss made over 600 times the middle worker in that business. Back in the 1950s, the ratio was around 10 to 1. This shows how much inequality has risen since we were one of the world's longest-lived nations. Since, since the 1950s, our lives have become longer, although for the last seven or so years, our length of life has been declining absolutely. Not only is our health not improving, it is getting worse. In fact, the current U.S. life expectancy is about where it was in 1996. We want to avoid what happened in Russia after the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. Mortality increased dramatically for similar reasons occurring in the United States. Namely, economic inequality ballooned in Russia. Russian health now is about where it was in 1991. We want to avoid the same fate. How to do that? The simple answer is to decrease our huge economic inequality and use the proceeds to support early life. Change the tax structure to what it was back in the 1950s when we were one of the longest-lived nations. The highest marginal tax rate then was 91%. That is, if you made a million dollars and then added another dollar to your income, then 91 cents of that dollar went to the government. Now the highest marginal tax rate is in the mid-30% range. So let's raise taxes on the rich. They can afford it. Use the money to have a national paid parental leave program and let Papua New Guinea be the only country lacking such. 
guarantee a living wage, fund childcare, preschool, and more progressive funding for public schools, support free college education and erase student debt, and so many other policies in the so-called liberal domain. I could go on and on, but social spending, as this is called, has been demonstrated in many research studies to improve health much more than spending on medical care. If we add the average social spending of other rich nations, our life expectancy would have risen four years. We also need to change our language and recognize when we say we are accessing health, getting health, paying for health, ensuring health, we do nothing of the kind. These phrases all relate to health care. We need to ask the question, do we want health or health care? As Mark Twain, who hailed from Missouri, is reputed to have said, it ain't what folks don't know that bothers me, it's what they know that just ain't so. So more health care is not going to do it. What's not to like about decreasing inequality and sharing? I'm sure most listeners out there would rather live a longer, healthier life than a shorter, sicker one. We just need the right medicine. As a country, we knew this long ago. At the end of the Second War, World War, we had destroyed Japan by firebombing their cities and dropping two atomic bombs. Japan's life expectancy then was 24 years. The American-led occupation of Japan led to three major policies that changed the huge inequality present there before the war and resulted in the most rapid improvements in health ever seen on the planet. By 1978, Japan had the world's longest life expectancy, a status it maintains today. What, what were those three policies? Demilitarization, namely Japan was forbidden to have an army and had to resolve all disputes peacefully. The second was democratization, which included a clause in the constitution we wrote for the nation that gave the government responsibility to ensure the health of its people. The third component, decentralization, another D, was to break up the concentrations of power that had 13 families, the Zaibatsu, owning most of the productive enterprises there. A maximum wage was instituted. The United States did this, so we know how to make a country the healthiest. It showed we cared about their health and knew how to repair the damage we had done there. The medicine had three ingredients, demilitarization, democratization, and decentralization. We could take our own medicine or ask Japan to give it to us. Either way, it would make America healthy again. We're always being given advice to be healthy. Here's some realistic health advice. 
Don't be poor. Be born in a caring, sharing, and repairing society. Don't have poor parents. Don't live in a country with high income or wealth inequality, or one that doesn't provide time and resources for parenting. Don't work in a stressful, low-paid, and meaningless job. You can add some others to this list. How, how is this relevant to Unitarian Universalists? You value, you value justice and compassion along with the goal of a world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. If we are not alive, then we can't take part in the world community, which today needs a great deal of healing. How are we going to take a step to make America healthy again? One, one that sounds outlandish in today's political climate. For you listeners out there, begin by asking three questions. What are you good at that is relevant to your health? What do you enjoy doing? For if you don't enjoy doing it, you won't keep doing it for long. And finally, what can you do for a long time without getting paid much to do it? I try to be good at teaching, writing, and talking, and enjoy these activities. I have to. I have enough money so I don't have to worry about getting more. Maybe you belong to a book club. Then set up a reading group based on my book, Inequality Kills. In chapter 10 there, titled, What Can We Do?, I lay out a whole host of activities for a range of abilities and situations. What you can do in the workplace, at your place of worship, in community gatherings, in social media forums, and many more. In my courses, I require my students to do community outreach exercises so I've learned from their ideas and provide many options in that chapter. Consider some radical ideas to attract attention to our being dead first. Suppose the State of the Union address, required by the Constitution, called for the president to address the Union in comparison to other unions. Only one president has said that the State of the Union was something other than strong. That was President Ford in 1975, after Nixon resigned because of Watergate. The president might say something like, The State of the Union is rather unhealthy, as people in some 40 or more countries live longer, healthier lives. Such a statement in the speech would get plenty of media attention and get us asking the right questions. Thomas Pynchon wrote in Gravity's Rainbow, quote, if they can get you asking the wrong questions, they don't have to worry about the answers, end of quote. The right question is something along the lines of, why are we dead first? Another idea. Suppose you are hired for a job that pays less than a livable wage and had to sign a contract saying that this job was hazardous for your health. You might, you might say, hey, wait a minute, what does this mean? <laughs> so, so put that in the contract, low-paid 
job is hazardous to your health. Our, our poor health is getting some media attention, but, but not nearly enough to lead to the required change. As, as a kid, I recall the headline in 1957 that Russia had launched the satellite Sputnik into space. We were, we were caught totally off guard and entered the space race with the goal of landing a human on the moon by the end of the 1960s. We were, we were successful, of course, and no other nation has landed people there. Suppose the news headlines of our being uh, dead first, and we needed to become among the healthiest nations on the planet. Suppose those were the news headlines. We could set a goal, such as Australia did in 2010, to beat Japan as the longest-lived nation by 2020. I managed to get a panel discussion on our declining health at the American Public Health Association's annual meeting in November, another step to attract attention. Mostly, our public health schools and other organizations do not compare our health with that in other nations, as they don't want to portray something other than the best outcomes, which is accepted as a part of American exceptionalism. This, this has to change, so I'm trying to seed a competency for schools of public health to make comparisons of U.S. health with other nations. Well, I'm going to have to stop depressing you further and ask for your thoughts. Challenge your ideas. Disagree with me. Nothing furthers understanding better than having two opposing okay, points. Well, thank you. It forces the listener to ask herself, he says, she says, what do I think? Let's make America healthy again. People with questions can come line up here. And as a reminder, each week's program is broadcast on KKFI after some delay. Thanks to KKFI for their support of the forum. And is there somebody that has a question? Please come up here. Hi. So I... I appreciated what you used some of the UN statistics and some of those ways to just, you know, see how each country is handling some of this stuff. One of the um, votes that the UN just recently took is, is food and human right? And the only country to say no to that was, of course, the United States. So how does food insecurity and the right to have food or the right for shelter, how do these things factor into that um, to bring that income inequality into focus and to um, kind of implement some of these things that you're talking about? Okay. All right. Can you ask your question again? And I will, let's see, turn the speaker back on. Sorry. That was my bad. Uh, so I was asking about... The UN had a vote of whether food is a basic human right, and the only country to vote no was the United States. And I was asking how the basic human rights of of food and and shelter. Um, how does how does affirming those things, and how does us like putting those kind of things in action help with putting what you're talking about with income inequality into to practice to keep people healthy and to raise that life expectancy. 
Well, well, thank you for asking that. Uh, the United States does have a history of not ratifying all sorts of uh, UN agreements, uh, and, uh, going back to the 1989 uh, Declaration of the Rights of a Child. Uh, we're the only country to date that haven't has not ratified the Universal Declaration of the Rights of the Child. And uh, reasons there go back to in the 1990s, we executed children. Uh, we stopped doing that. But now uh, the idea is if we recognize the rights of children, it will conflict with family values. So that's an issue. Um, and similarly, food and shelter, um, you know, we it's, it's an absolute paradox that we have so many unhoused people in this country and so many people with food insecurity. And I think the what really is going to matter is popular pressure. Suppose we had, you know, this is uh, uh Suppose we had a, many more millions demonstrating on the mall in Washington, D.C. I mean, people power is much bigger than the power of the people in power, but we have to exercise our power. So I agree with you. It's going to take a lot of people power to make changes. Uh, hi, thank you. Uh, my name is Richard. I um, have a question more specific to the Missouri State Legislature. Um, there's been a number of ballot initiatives passed that would help with income inequality. Um, and then the Missouri State Legislature turns around and tries to undo whatever the people voted for. Um, I'm curious. I, I don't know if people power would work or if maybe there's another way to make this work, but how do we get the Missouri State Legislature to um, respect the will of the people? Um, well, I think people power is the one thing we have. Uh, the trouble with with it is with our current uh, situation, we we don't sort of get out in public very much and we don't organize you know and i have a lot of stock phrases i can use if we don't organize we're gonna die you know organize or die if we don't mass people together and push for what we want um uh, we're not gonna get it it's all of these are sort of soft things the the people the will of the rich in studies show that that's what leads to policies and where the will of the rich coincides with the will of the rest of us then we get those policies but mostly the rich want policies to further themselves and i think the way to counter that um is people power i mean you know really the power of the people is so much greater than the power of the people in power but all the media, all the efforts out there, all social media forces us or pushes us to try and look at our own uh, our own uh, limitations and not allow us to work together. I mean, it's you know, it's not an easy answer to sort of uh, give that way. So there's no there's no easy solutions. Excuse me. In the models looking at life expectancy, if you control for all the other variables, does race still rise to the top after controlling for everything else as a predictor? 
well, Angus Deaton would probably say, would probably agree with you. He's a Nobel Prize winning economist at uh, the University of Michigan, at the University of at Princeton University, uh, who also, uh, with his wife, Annie Case, coined the term deaths of despair. Um, but that's an, that's leading me down the wrong way. So, so you will, uh, my students, for example, now think of race as the uh, fundamental cause of so many of our issues. And, uh, and I think race, it, race is secondary to class. And we have these class differences, which really echo inequality in our society. So I think statistically controlling for uh, so, many so many factors, factors uh, you know, you know, the over-controlling uh, can be a problem. And that's why when I actually describe the three factors that the way income inequality uh, produces further health, it gets away from statistical analyses. So uh, I think race is an important issue. History of slavery, the intergenerational transmission of health. Um, but I, but I, I would say that inequality, for, you know, uh, Darity at Duke University suggests that we undertake reparations to equalize um, black and white wealth to, so that those who had a slave ancestor get gets money to bring their wealth up to that of whites. I think that that's an example of a reparation that we would consider that could have a fair amount of effect. And reparations are something that are being discussed in the Caribbean. Uh, the British paid reparations to the Mau Mau in Kenya. Uh, I think we need to, to look at really kind of radical possibilities to decrease the health inequities between blacks and whites. That's a long-winded answer. Um, I take exception to your use of the term class. Um, is it likely uh, the the? It seems to me that the the bigger problem in America is tribalism, and that tribalism combined with class is probably the one of the dividing factors of accomplishing anything in America. Could you comment on that? One make a strong, one can make a strong argument for tribalism. I mean, if I think of you know, I, I was uh, I grew up in the 1960s, and then uh, there was a lot of radical activity, opposition to the uh, invasion of Vietnam, the civil rights movement, the mass demonstrations in in Europe and uh, in Asia and in the United States, and that really um, threatened the rich and powerful. And, and they actually, uh, the Trilateral Commission wrote a report you can find on the web titled The Crisis of Democracy. And what was the crisis? They said if the events of the 1960s continued, it could lead to an excess of democracy. And so they said, we rather than that, we need to sort of cool democracy down. And so, and so a variety of factors have come into play to distract us from democracy. One is choosing your pronouns. Not a bad idea, but 
uh, again, it's it's a distraction. Uh, the political, other political tribalism ideas uh, are out there as well. Um, you know, we we have we have the power through the vote and through the variety of political processes to make major changes. But the those in power have managed to distract us with what I think you accurately describe as political tribalism. So, so class, I mean, Canada, I mean, the United States is supposed to be a middle class society. But if you define the middle class as a, in a statistical measure, a certain proportion of people, we have the smallest middle class of all rich countries. So, I, so I'd still uh, say class is important. So normally we'd be ending about now, but we have a couple minutes yet because we started late. So I do have another question. I want to come back to the race issue again. So we talk about reparations for slavery, but I don't hear many people talk about reparations for the American Indians who originally owned the land. So that's one issue I wanted to bring up. The other one is I used to work at a medical school in admissions. Um, with the affirmative action and recent decisions, what that school was looking at was actually first generation students giving preference to those students, which recognized particularly where the school was in an Appalachian area where you had a lot of rural poverty among whites in particular. So it was looking at that, so addressing uh, a broader piece than particularly one racial group um, but looking at years of impoverishment among particular identifiable groups, such as Native Americans, Appalachian poor. Any comment or thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. So uh, indigenous Americans, American Indians, whatever term you want to use, they have the worst health in the country. And the place with the worst health is Pine Ridge Indian Reservation uh, in South Dakota. If we, if we take the uh, racialized groups, the American Indians, and if, and if they represented a country and you look at their life expectancy, they would be around 140th among the 180 sort of UN nations. So the worst outcomes um, within, the, within the country, American Indians. What you make about uh, whites in Appalachia, I think, is important because uh, at the local level, some of the worst health outcomes are in McDowell County in West Virginia, and and those are mostly whites, and uh, they have incredible poverty levels. Remember, I, I, I uh, in terms of health advice, I said don't be born poor. Well, whose responsibility is that? You. You can't choose your parents. I said, don't have poor parents. Uh, don't, not being born poor is a responsibility of the country. And when, depending on how you measure poverty, we have the most poverty of all rich countries. That's certainly true. And poverty is a policy choice. We have to recognize that. Robert Reich, the uh, Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration uh, points that out very clearly. We have so much poverty because we choose to have it. And why might that be something that the rich and powerful want, namely a lot of poverty? Well, if you're poor, you are not going to work together and organize and threaten the rich. 
So there's a uh, sociologist at UC Berkeley, uh, Loic Vacant, who wrote a book with the title, I, I'm always looking for titles that say everything, Punishing the Poor. So we, we take the poor and we punish them further so they don't organize and rise up and threaten the rich. Okay, well, I think we have to leave it there. Thank you very much, Dr. Bajruska. Uh, join us next week when Ken Schmitz will discuss nuclear energy. It's a blessing and a curse. Schmitz is Professor Emeritus in Physical Chemistry and Environmental Science from UMKC. Oh, and let's thank the speaker once again. Thank, thank you. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the All Souls Forum. Before we go, here is a preview of next week's All Souls Forum also from All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church of Kansas City, Missouri. And it deals with nuclear energy. It's a blessing and a curse. With Professor Kenneth Schmitz, Professor Emeritus of the University of Missouri, Kansas City. And again, a caution, there is a significant amount of echo in this recording. Zamar and Wigner were afraid that Hitler might develop the atomic bomb, so they wrote a letter to FDR about uh, the possibility of making an atomic bomb. They gave it to Einstein to sign because he was the most famous scientist at the time, so he could uh, get attention. So FDR signed the papers that created the Manhattan Project. The project was a secret. Congress approved funding the Manhattan Project without knowing what they were funded. The Manhattan Project was headed by Leslie Groves. He was in charge of the project. J. Robert Oppenheimer was in charge of the science. Now, the military liked secrecy. They wanted to compartmentalization. They didn't want any communication between the scientists. But science advances through <laughs> communication. <laughs> At that time, only two grams of enriched uranium were present. We needed, they needed tons sustained of nuclear material for a sustained nuclear reaction. The isotopes of uranium, the fissile material, the 235, it was less than 1% in natural uranium. So we needed 90%. So, Arthur Compton was given the task of finding a company that would purify, separate the uranium for the atomic bomb. And he found one that was Edward Mallinckrodt. Mallinckrodt has a pharmaceutical uh, place in, in downtown St. Louis. Now, <laughs> the Manhattan Project, the Belgium pitched kitchen when has the highest concentration of natural uranium, which is only 0.1%. So there's a big problem. The U-235 that was separated, that was, the use was for nuclear fuel, it was sent elsewhere for further refinement. <clears throat> the 238 was put in drums, and the reason is, well, sometime in the future, we're going to recover trace elements. And this is the nuclear waste. Well, 
The Safe Side and Offense documentary is done by Tony West. I'm using videos from this documentary. Uh, Tony showed this twice at Tivoli, and Raina and I went to talk to him to see the show. And Tony and I became good friends, and we still communicate after all these years. Now, Tony is not a scientist, but he does do documentary. He gets paid by being part of the broadcast team for the St. Louis Cardinals and the St. Louis Blues hockey team. The ones that are children of friends, you people now, the storage of nuclear waste, they put in the drums. The government had 21 acres north of San Luis Airport. This is the San Luis Airport site. And they stored all the uh, drums of uranium at this site. I want to point out that Coldwater Creek is one of the boundaries of this site. Thanks for listening. Now stay tuned for Jazz in the Afternoon following immediately and for the Happy Hour at 3 p.m followed by the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 p.m. All right here on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio.